The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 191. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page, at Brian McClanahan. And, of course, subscribe to my YouTube page, at Brian McClanahan. Go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com, B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Give me an email address, and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com and rolling for free and purchasing one of my five cor- courses uh, there. Um, so it's a great way to uh, get educated, expand your horizons, and I highly recommend it also because it is free to enroll. All of those who enroll in the Academy do get the best deals when new courses come out. And I will have at least two courses coming out in 2019. So you're going to want to get on that. No new courses for the rest of the year, but two in 2019. You can also support the Brian McClanahan Show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. And uh, you can also support the Brian McClanahan Show by going to redbubble.com. And searching for my name, Brian McClanahan, you'll get all my Brian McClanahan logo gear, shirts, clocks, wall plates, stickers, all kinds of cool stuff. So go to redbubble.com and look for my name and you'll get all that gear. And then finally, of course, uh, I was uh, marketing this the last uh, week, learntruehistory.com. Great way to support the show. If you go to learntruehistory.com, that's my Liberty Classroom affiliate link. I do teach there with Tom Woods, Kevin Goodsman, a whole host of other great professors. You've got over 20 classes, and it's a fantastic way. It's a great value, great bang for your buck. You can also support the show by going there as well. Okay, well, let's talk about the topic for the day, which is John F. Kennedy. I've had a lot of people ask me to do this, and I've been putting it off, but I figured it's a good time to do it. Uh, We just had, of course, or at this point, uh, just recently, the the anniversary of Kennedy's assassination, November 22nd, so this uh, episode is airing after that, but not long after that. So um, I wanted to discuss the Kennedy administration, and there's this perception that Kennedy was somehow a modern-day conservative, conservative, quote-unquote. Now, what does that mean? I know a lot of people in the establishment conservative movement like John F. Kennedy. They'd say, well, if Kennedy was alive today, he'd be a Republican. Um, I, I don't think that there's, I actually do agree with that to an extent, that he would be an establishment character, and that the Republican Party, uh, more than anything else, is essentially the same party that it was, and I've already done a, an episode on this, the same party that it was many, many years ago, and Kennedy would fit the mold of a Republican. Um, now, does that make him a conservative? Uh, I would say no. Of course, when you're looking at uh, conservative, liberal, these terms and what they actually mean. I mean, these are these are ambiguous terms and don't really have much meaning anymore in modern American society. What are Americans who are conservatives, quote-unquote, looking to conserve? And what are liberals looking to change and reform? I would think that the, the liberals have actually gone with the correct term, and that would be progressives. They are progressives, and the conservatives should just realize they're progressives too. John F. Kennedy was a progressive. Uh, and there's no doubt about it, he might have been a more uh, conservative progressive, but he certainly was a progressive. Uh, he was a Wilsonian, and I think you can't get around the fact that George W. Bush was a Wilsonian. Uh, these are all progressives. Since the early 20th century, we've gone to a point where we've gotten to a point where there aren't really any 
individuals in public life that aren't progressives. You have to be a progressive to get elected because uh, at, the, at the core, you have a situation where people believe that government on the left and the right needs to do something to advance a particular agenda, whether it's social conservatism, which in many ways was the social gospel part of the progressive movement. We're going to give uh, the people reform-minded legislation. We're going to get rid of harmful substances. We're going to get rid of immoral activity through legislation. So we're going to do that through legislation. Or whether it's reform progressives, where you're going to use the government to mitigate the evils, quote-unquote, of uh, natural selection. We're going to make sure that the, the, the poor are not left behind. Now, uh, or, you know, certain people aren't left behind. We're going to make it to where uh, we have we have natural selection, we have Darwinism. We're going to make sure that we can mitigate the effects of Darwinism through legislation. We're going to level society, in other words. We know that some people are better than others. We're going to make sure that that doesn't happen anymore. And so those reform progressives are interested in all the uh, social justice programs. And this has been the case for a long period of time. So we have these two sides pushing on the government to do something. And of course, both sides firmly believe in expansive American foreign policy. Both sides are fairly militaristic. Um, both sides look at the state as an essential vehicle in, again, pursuing their agenda. So I'll probably do an episode on progressives at some point because I think it'd be fun to do it. And I think I'm going to wait until after I see this new <laughs> film on Dick Cheney, Vice, uh, because uh, it's going to bash the bushes and, of course, Dick Cheney, which will be a lot of fun. So I'll probably wait and, and talk about conservative progressives, quote-unquote conservative progressives at that point, because that's all George W. Bush really was. But I want to talk about JFK because you know, when, when you look at it, when conservatives go back and they look at JFK, they'll say, well, here's a guy that cut taxes. Here's a guy that believed in fighting the Cold War. Here's a guy that believed in the space race. He, here's, here's a guy that uh, supported essentially our modern agenda. And I think that that's entirely true. Um, you know, when Reagan stood up and said that uh, he was a liberal, it's just the liberals had, had taken hold of the word and distorted it. I don't think that he was lying about that. Uh, but what you have essentially in mainstream conservatism is a or policies that are similar to what the Kennedys wanted in the 1960s. And so the Kennedy administration is often held up as this great example of, of uh, what Democrats could be. And I will say this about Kennedy. I mean, back in the 1960s, or at the time in the 1960s, uh, America was not divided in terms of um, belief in certain... Uh, moral standards as divided as it is today. Uh, there was still this American nationalism that held people together. And I know, of course, you know people will say, well, if they were divided because you had segregation and other things. And that is true. But I think in terms of the idea of America, Americans were not divided in the 1960s on left and right as they are today. Uh, Kennedy was an ardent Cold Warrior, and you would find the same thing on the right as you did on the left. We had to go out and beat communism. I mean, for example, uh, the Kennedys, Robert and John, both authorized the wiretapping of, of uh, Martin Luther King because he had communist associates, and so they were ardent anti-communists. They didn't want communist intrusion in America. Though, on the other hand, John F. Kennedy was also quoted as saying, look, if, if it's going to require 
the submission to the communists to keep nuclear war, I'd rather be red than dead. I mean, this was during the Cuban Missile Crisis and the uh, very tense period in October of uh, 1963. Um, so... He'd rather be red than dead, uh, was was his position, um, and you know you, you could say that uh, I, I guess that's being pragmatic. Um, so how his commitment to commun- anti-communism, what was it? Now I, I think you can admire him for not wanting to have a world war. I mean that's a good thing, not having a nuclear war. That's a good thing. But on the other hand, this is also the individual that uh, ramped up American involvement in Vietnam. So. Um, and, and created the mess that uh, led to the Vietnam War, American involvement and in, in more substantial involvement in Vietnam. So uh, Kennedy in that way is a disaster. But I'll get into that in a second. So you have this this idea that uh, you know all Americans are pretty much united in this belief in being anti-communist. They're also generally united in a Christian worldview. Uh, there are certain normal things in society, and then there's abnormal things in society. Um, and you didn't have the type of divisiveness on these social issues that you have today. Certainly, you had the civil rights movement. And I think overall, the majority of Americans uh, believe that uh, the civil rights movement was just in the 1960s. So it, it didn't, I mean, you had Southerners that believed the civil rights movement was just. You had Northerners that believed it was just. So I think you would find that the majority of Americans believe that particular position in the 1960s. And so that was... Uh, a commonly held view. On the other hand, some of the other issues that came out or some of the other things that have come out in the modern left, um, the the use of government in ways that, uh, I mean, I think Kennedy would have even opposed uh, to push a social agenda um, was not something that these people were contemplating in the 60s, at least, at least in, the, in the mainstream, the establishment. They weren't contemplating some of these moves. Eventually they would. I mean, I think that you saw by the late 60s, and we were talking early 60s now, so we're just, we're really in the 1950s. And the 1960s really didn't begin until about 1964, uh, maybe after the assassination of Kennedy in 63. But 64 is when the 1960s really began. Kennedy was a byproduct of the 50s in many ways, this 50s worldview of America and the world and society. So um, I, th- I find that. If we could talk about that. Where do the 60s begin? Where the, where the 50s end? Where the 50s begin in the, in the 50s? And in, where the 60s end? I think the 60s extended into the 1970s. And then you had, after Nixon's resignation, you had the 1970s really begin in earnest. Um, so, we, we in terms of you know how we conceptualize these decades. Uh, but let's start with Kennedy's domestic program. It was called the New Frontier, and so he had a progressive agenda, just like every president essentially from the early 20th century forward. This began with Teddy Roosevelt and moved forward uh, into um, all the progressive presidents. Uh, you know, but Roosevelt had it. Uh, Wilson, of course. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt. You know, there, there certainly was an, uh, a... An, uh, a rescinding of that particular agenda when you got to uh, Coolidge, but then Franklin Roosevelt, uh, Hoover essentially had one as well. It just wasn't called the New Deal, but um, when the Great Depression began, Hoover was trying to ramp up government involvement. But uh, when you had these named programs, I mean, certainly the progressives were were famous for this. And then after, uh, beginning with Franklin Roosevelt, it seemed like everybody had to have a named domestic program. So 
We had the New Deal, then the Fair Deal, um, then uh, dynamic conservatism under Dwight Eisenhower, which was just a soft version of the New Deal. I mean, it, Eisenhower believed that the um, uh, Roosevelt administration with the New Deal had gone too far, but we still needed to keep the apparatus of the New Deal in place, just not quite as aggressive. And then, of course, you had... Um, Kennedy with the New Frontier. And then after that, you had the Great Society and on down the line. So we had the New Frontier. And the New Frontier, first of all, it has this very space-age message to it, right? And that's because of Kennedy's interest in, in the space race and the space program. So you know, the early 1960s were a, a period of time coming out of the 50s where we had gotten the space race movement. I think it was it was genius marketing to call it the New Frontier um, because it, it had this very much, uh, you know, modernist approach to a domestic agenda. And when you look at what this domestic agenda entailed, first of all, you had an expansive government budget. In fact, the Kennedy administration was the first to top, uh, I think it was $100 billion in terms of a, uh, a, a budget uh, for uh, the general government, $100 billion. And um, that's a lot of money. Uh, it's you know, we're over a trillion you know, over a trillion dollar budgets now, but the Kennedy administration was the first to do this, and corresponding with that, Kennedy also realized that one thing Americans didn't like were high taxes, and so this is where modern conservatives look back at Kennedy and say, "This is our guy. He essentially is a supply sider," which is true. Um, are supply side economics conservative? Do they actually work? Is the question. There's no doubt that supply side economics will boost the economy. The problem is, and when I say boost the economy, you will increase spending, both consumer and uh, government spending uh, through supply-side economics. In fact, supply-side economics don't ever talk about cutting budgets. Now, I know Reagan did. There was an attempt. We got, if we're gonna, we got to cut budgets. But that happened, uh, really didn't happen at all during the 1980s. I think there was one cycle that the Republicans were able to go in and actually have some moderate, some modest budget cuts. But for the most part, uh, what you saw with supply-side economics was reduction of taxes, because the idea, of course, is that when you reduce taxes, you're going to increase government revenue, and you don't really need to cut spending. You can keep spending going at a, at a good clip, because the belief is that government spending does also stimulate the economy, uh, particularly on defense. And so during the Kennedy administration, you are going to see increased spending on defense, whether it's through the space program, which was very expensive, or through uh, conventional weapons. During the Eisenhower years, you had an emphasis on nuclear weapons, what Eisenhower called more bang for the buck. We were going to decrease our conventional forces and make it to where every single apparatus that the United States military had, from aircraft to uh, even infantry weapons, would be nuclear this is where you get the very famous Davy Crockett weapon, which is an amazing weapon. If you've ever seen this thing, it is an infantry deliverable nuclear weapon. Uh, it had a three-man team, uh, and um, the the Davy gets, had a little tiny nuclear warhead on the end. And this, the idea was that these these infantry men would go out and launch off this nuclear weapon at an opposing tank division or something and wipe it out. Uh, it was a it was the size of the weapon was about the same size as the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. So you're talking about a small, 
tactical nuclear weapon. I mean, so that was Eisenhower's drive. You want to have bombers, you want to have tanks, you want to have artillery pieces, you want to have the Davy Crockett, you want to have as many things as you can that are nuclear. And then, of course, you get to Kennedy and he's saying, well, I mean, we, we want to increase conventional forces as a deterrent. So you had this debate in, of course, military circles, what would be the best deterrent? And uh, Bernard Brody, who was um, a driving factor in nuclear deterrence, his wife, Fawn Brody, was a historian, a psycho-historian. Uh, but Bernard Brody um, was certainly behind this idea of nuclear deterrence. The more nuclear weapons you have, the less likely we are to be attacked because people will be afraid we'll just nuke them. And, of course, the United States is the only country that's ever dropped nuclear weapons on an enemy. So um, I guess there's a palpable fear of that. You know, we've done it before. We'll do it again. So Kennedy is is spending a lot of money on defense. Uh, that's increasing the budget for the United States. So we have these tax cuts, which did go into effect. Um, certainly, Kennedy was pushing for it. You didn't get wholesale tax cuts until after he was already dead. But he was already pushing for these tax cuts as a way to ensure in his mind that he would win re-election in 1964. He was already gearing up for a re-election campaign in 63 when he was pushing these tax cuts. Um, so that's part of this, uh, this new frontier. You also had an emphasis on civil rights legislation, uh, which, as I just mentioned in the opening, was something that Americans, the majority of Americans, North and South, I think, even though you had large numbers of Southerners who were opposed to uh, civil rights legislation in the 60s. Um, I think that uh, you know most Americans, North and South, were supportive of um, civil rights, even if it was a, a bare majority, but they were supportive of it, particularly when it came to the Southern states. Now, they weren't supportive of it in their own backyard, as we saw when Boston was forced to desegregate in the 1970s. When I say desegregate, they were forced to bus, uh, students, bus students in these... Um, segregated districts, which were segregated de facto, not de jure. And so there were violent riots against this. So as long as it wasn't in their backyard, they're perfectly for it. Um, and this was, you know, where you get the inconsistency on, in beliefs in the 1960s and 70s. But regardless, uh, looking at it from the outside, uh, you had the majority of, of uh, the congressional delegation. And of course, um, I think public opinion was certainly galvanized by the late 1960s, but beginning in the early 1960s against segregation in the South. Um, so that was part of, of the new frontier as well. But um, you saw other pushes for things like a higher minimum wage and uh, some of these issues that, uh, you know, expansion of New Deal programs, uh, which later became the Great Society. Uh, Kennedy, I think, firmly believed, just like Lyndon Johnson and Harry Truman and, and Franklin Roosevelt's second Bill of Rights, where the government would provide certain things for people, uh, that the government had an obligation to provide the basic comforts of, of uh, society uh, in one way or another. This was, of course, disguised under the general welfare, which is a distortion of the meaning in the Constitution, but that was the, that was the goal. So Kennedy's new frontier was not much different from dynamic conservatism or George W. Bush's compassionate conservatism. It's the same thing. It's an expansion of, of the New Deal uh, in various forms. Of course, uh, Lyndon Johnson would go further with the Great Society. But there's little doubt that uh, conservatives today, quote-unquote conservatives, believe in an expansion of government benefits 
in a variety of ways. I mean, look at when George W. Bush was president, you had Medicare Part D. I mean, you had expansion of Medicare benefits. And I think you have a lot of quote-unquote conservatives today rallying around uh, government takeover of health care. Um, there's, no, there's, there's little question that they would support these things. And I think they would do it. They do it because they believe the public wants that, which is not true, but this is what they believe. And of course, they get, they get uh, browbeaten into supporting it by the press and others who call them all kinds of nasty names if they don't support these things. So that part of, of Kennedy's administration was certainly not conservative in, in that he's looking to limit government or limit the, the growth of government or the expansion of government. You saw a tremendous expansion of government during the Kennedy administration. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover's FBI was certainly expansive during the Kennedy administration. Uh, so you had the expansion, of, which of course began in the 1950s with Eisenhower, and uh, you know the the secret uh, the, the secret activities of the CIA and others, but I mean, so you had this expansion of this clandestine, this uh, this deep state during the Kennedy administration, without question, you had it. So uh, that's that's certainly part of the Kennedy administration. And then when you get to the foreign policy, uh, look, there's nothing about Kennedy's foreign policy that is traditionally American conservative. It's Wilsonian internationalist. And Kennedy, I, look, the, the Democrats were more responsible for the, for the ramping up of the Cold War than any other group in American history. I mean, without Roosevelt, we don't have the Cold War. Harry Truman was an ardent Cold Warrior uh, to, the, to the extent that he tried to show his anti-communist chops by continually getting the United States involved in things like the Korean War, uh, showing that we're, we're going to be aggressive. Then, of course, Dwight Eisenhower carried the theme forward. So did John F. Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson. I mean, you don't have in what's the continent? Look, Roosevelt, Democrat, Truman, Democrat, Kennedy, Democrat, Johnson, Democrat. Uh, the Democrats were just as responsible, in fact, more responsible than Republicans for getting the United States in, embroiled in these very nasty international wars. Uh, Truman with Korea, Kennedy with Vietnam, Johnson with Vietnam. And then George W. Bush, this is, you know, George W. Bush is a Wilsonian progressive. And the war on terror is the exact same thing. It's just a different type of Cold War. So Kennedy, uh, in the early 1960s, made some disastrous decisions when it came to Vietnam. And, and um, the ouster of, of Jim, uh, which was uh, something that he said that he didn't really order. But um, I think that when you look at Jim's assassination, there's there's no doubt that uh, the United States had his fingerprints all over it. And of course, with him gone and, and even propping up that uh, horrible regime in Vietnam, uh, the United States, you know, Henry Cabot Lodge goes to Vietnam and, uh, you know, that's that's Kennedy's that's Kennedy's guy. Here's a Massachusetts Henry Cabot Lodge go over there to to uh, uh, Vietnam and, and make sure that these guys uh, you know, they, they get in line with the United States. And, of course, we're propping up this regime that nobody in South Vietnam likes. Um, and Kennedy's doing all under the guise, well, we got to fight commies. we got to make sure that these commies don't take over Vietnam. you got to make sure that Ho Chi Minh is not in power, which was a direct violation of American principles when it came to self-determination. Um, there's some question as to if, if the United States had simply backed Minh 
early on if the Vietnamese would have been as ardently communist as they were. That essentially American resistance to Ho Chi Minh forced him into being much more an, a much more ardent communist than he already was, and of course seeking back, uh, seeking uh, a, a alliance with the Soviet Union and China. Uh, maybe uh, there would have been a case where uh, Minh would have been a much more uh, substantial ally in Southeast Asia than uh, an enemy if the United States had simply just backed him early on because he had pledged to support the United States, even if he was communist. So that would have been an interesting dynamic. Of course, in the context of the Cold War, you can't do that. You can't support a communist. Because what happens if it works in Vietnam? Is it going to work here? And I think Americans overall uh, were certainly in, in belief opposed to communism, though when it actually was applied to America, they were perfectly fine with it in a lot of ways. Um, so you had that certainly that part of, of uh, American internationalism. Then, of course, you had the Cold War with the Soviet Union. I mean, you had the Berlin Wall in the early 60s. You had uh, the U-2 spy program, which uh, was not Kennedy, but um, you know something that uh, you know the Gary Powers incident later on, and um, so you had you had that going on during the Kennedy administration. You had uh, the increasing tensions between Cuba and the United States, which of course were produced in the 1950s, and then um, the Bay of Pigs invasion, which was a disaster, which Kennedy withdrew support from. Uh, and that might have actually contributed to getting him killed because the CIA never uh, let him live that down. Uh, but still, you had this uh, this approach to Cuba, which was very much in line with the Cold War and uh, American imperialism. Um, so I, I don't think that you could say that uh, Kennedy's uh, positions were anything but mainstream conservative, which is Wilsonian progressive, in terms of foreign policy. He wasn't a, a person that believed in the traditional American foreign policy of non-intervention in any stretch of the imagination. Um, so he wasn't traditionally conservative. He was modern American conservative, and he was modern progressive. I mean, that's that's what you get. Uh, the Obama administration clearly was the same thing. So was the Clinton administration. So was the Bush administration. So was the Trump administration. I mean, this is this is where uh, you get into that that American and in, in imperialist position. There's almost no turning back from it now. I think it'd be very hard. Trump Trump talks about it every now and then, but there's almost no turning back from it. Uh, so in terms of foreign policy, I mean, that's Kennedy's no different um, from any other progressive. Uh, in the in the 20th century, and then of course uh, you had the space race, which was a vast expansion of unconstitutional government. Uh, you can this was always presented under the Air Force, essentially that well this is new uh, this is a new defense program. Uh, we're we're going to launch astronauts, and these are all military pilots. We're going to launch these military pilots into outer space, and so we create this NASA division. And we get things like Velcro and Tang. I mean, isn't that great? Uh, so the space race is certainly part of an expansion of the general government and what the general government can do in terms of its charge. Now, if you want to sell it under American defense, defense spending, I mean, that's the only way you can, in theory, defend the creation of NASA or uh, any of the space programs. And I mean, this stuff is all cool. There's, uh, if you've ever seen these Saturn rockets... In person, it is an amazing machine, the biggest machine Amer humans have ever built, a Saturn rocket. They are, they are absolutely uh, just amazing creations. 
Uh, there's no other way to describe it. Uh, almost superhuman creations when you look at these things. And um, we have the Mars rover sitting on uh, Mars right now and sending pictures back. And uh, these new these new uh, uh, space uh, programs and other things. This stuff is really neat. But at the end of the day, when you look at the U.S. Constitution, is this stuff even constitutional? I mean, that's that's the question. So Kennedy, of course, from my perspective and, and why I would say, and I didn't include him in my nine presidents who screwed up America because Kennedy wasn't really that unique in anything he was doing. He was certainly signing unconstitutional legislation all the time. Uh, he was certainly pushing a domestic agenda, which is not what the president does, or at least should be able to do under Article 2 all the time. Uh, he was certainly not in line with the traditional American foreign policy um, and the way that the founding generation conceptualized of that. So, yeah, I mean, he fit. I, I could have just essentially included him with all the presidents of the last you know, 30 years in that particular way, too, or last half century. I mean, uh, but the reason I, would, I didn't put him there and I would put, for example, Lyndon Johnson there is because Lyndon Johnson was more dynamic when it came to his domestic agenda. Kennedy's domestic agenda was just uh, soft New Dealism, and uh, so he wasn't a, a a dynamic figure when it came to some type of you know, ideologue. Johnson was much more of an ideologue, uh, which is why he he didn't make the book, whereas Truman and Johnson did, and of course Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt did, because those three individuals were were driving. Kennedy was just very vanilla, um, and I think that's why conservatives like him, because he didn't he doesn't appear to be an ideologue. Why modern conservatives say, we need to go back to John F. Kennedy when everybody was unified and uh, people believe the same things, whether they're on the left or the right. That doesn't even include all of Kennedy's picadillos, which I'm not going to get into in a in a family-friendly program, all of his immoral activities. And I cover all of that in my um, politically incorrect guide to real American heroes. The Kennedy family makes the anti-hero list, not just John F. Kennedy, but also Robert Kennedy and Teddy Kennedy and Joe Kennedy, the Kennedy clan, uh, makes the lists. Uh, this Camelot image that they had was just completely fabricated, just a lie. Um, and I think that that's, uh, <laughs> that's one of the great triumphs of the Kennedy family is their public relations and what they're able to pull off. And now everybody believed this lie of the Kennedy clan and that they were this great American family and all wholesome American family. And look at them, they got all these brothers and it was all corruption from the highest levels, from Joe Kennedy down. Uh, and there's there's no doubt about the, the fact that uh, they were master knee, political kneecappers and uh, a, a thuggish-type family when it came to politics. Little doubt. Um, so, uh, that's my position on Kennedy. Uh, he would certainly be a modern conservative. But that's not saying much about modern conservatives. In fact, uh, that's very much a critical assessment of modern conservatives. Um, there, there's, there's no doubt that Kennedy uh, was someone who was, uh, you know, and not a traditional American conservative. Um, and so, you know, there's now I will say one, one thing about Kennedy. Um, he, uh, he considered John C. Calhoun to be one of the most important members of the U.S. Senate. And again, this is where the 1960s. People still had commonly shared beliefs. Um, they, they, um, they weren't so. Political correctness wasn't rampant in the 1960s. So you could say things like, "Hey, John C. Calhoun was a great senator," 
We may not have agreed with everything that he did or everything he said, but he was a great senator, an important senator. Uh, We should respect John C. Calhoun. So you could say that. And Kennedy was always the politician. He's always trying to garner Southern support. He's pictured in front of Confederate flags and all kinds of things. He wanted Southerners to vote for him. And uh, Southerners, and John Patterson of Alabama uh, was a huge Kennedy supporter. Um, and because Kennedy had made assurances to him that uh, the United States would not really get involved, the U.S. government would not really get involved in Alabama in terms of civil rights. I mean, Kennedy spoke about civil rights, but on the back end, he really wasn't going to do much about it. He took a much more soft approach to it. Uh, And so he uh, he had support from people like John Patterson in Alabama. Now, this this is, you know, the interesting political workings of what's going on there. Kennedy was trying to be a real national president. Um, and not someone who could unify the, the different elements of American society. And I think in that way, um, you could say Kennedy was a Lincolnian nationalist. And, of course, he understood his, you know, he, he had uh, Schlesinger there in the White House. Well, you know, Lincoln was only great because Lincoln was assassinated. Uh, and that was, um, that was interesting. So, uh, you know, Kennedy is an interesting figure without question. Um, he's not really an important figure in terms of any type of structural changes to the presidency. Um, he has his image because he was assassinated, and I think he was well aware of legacy and some trying to type of traumatic event and what that could do. So in that way, again, Kennedy is, is, is an interesting figure of, of the period, maybe a transitional figure, but not someone who was uh, dynamic enough to be included in a list of people who uh, screwed up America. Um, certainly a continuation of the process, but not someone who was a, a trendsetter. All right, so I hope you enjoyed this posi- this uh, episode, I should say, on, on uh, John F. Kennedy. And I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. <laughs>